Dot, dot, dot. That was very good. Good morning. Uh, I had to turn my phone on airplane mode because our uh, executive pastor is at home not feeling too well, and so I don't want him texting me everything that I pronounce incorrectly during the sermon. So uh, we are very excited that you're here. As I said at the beginning of the service, if you are here today, kudos to you. You are holy. You lost an hour, and you still got to church. What, what? Today we continue in the third and last missionary journey of Paul's. That's a spoiler. And we unpack another event that happened that highlights the conflict and the pushback the gospel message represented in the traveling of Paul that he was receiving throughout the Gentile world. As we've read, we've kind of seen that wherever the gospel message is going, an uproar starts to begin. Today, we will begin to discuss testifying a positive message in a negative circumstance which for most of us is pretty difficult because we allow our circumstances to dictate our mood. Oh man, it didn't go to airplane mode. This is a bit of a two-parter, which we will conclude next week, but we're gonna begin, and as Melanie read at the end, there's a dot, 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 a cliffhanger, and I'm excited about today, and I'm excited about next week. While this message today specifically is not all about our moodiness, it is about how the spirit who dwells in many of us, also indwelled in Paul, and as he went from a free man to a prisoner, how it did not change the target or the goal that Paul was progressing towards of having the gospel message go throughout all of Asia Minor and into Greece and throughout all of the world. So let's pick up where we left off last week. We're going to be in verse 27. Here's what it says. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the crowd and seized him. When the seven days... Last week, our passage concluded with Paul beginning his vow and cleanse that was first documented in the Old Testament in number six. This was a Nazarite vow of cleansing oneself. And while this was not a requirement for Paul anymore, and it wasn't required for him to bring a gift to the, the people in Jerusalem, he was doing this. He was choosing to continue with this tradition because his Jewish heritage mattered to him. Here's the problem with how some view the Old Testament and the law. They think it's unnecessary. They think it's over with. But it has never been, ever since it was originally written, the, the law, the Old Testament, had never been written to justify oneself. It really has always existed to point out mankind's need for grace. So when you look at the Old Testament, look for Jesus. Look for the precursors. Look for the foreshadowing. When you look at the Old Testament, don't do away with it. Get excited because the king is coming. And he's a much better king than all the other kings we read about in the Old Testament. Now, it's, again, not to justify oneself. And we need God to do for us what we are unable to do for ourselves to make us righteous. See, he doesn't expect us to be, be righteous on our own. We can't by ourselves but instead, the one righteous one, the one good one, the one who stands right before God because of his perfect record, Jesus Christ, applies his perfection to our brokenness. That's the heart of the Christian message. It's not about us. It's about him. He applies his perfection. He was perfect. He was righteous. He was good. And he gifts it to us by grace. And that is what the Old Testament was setting up for those who would read and understand it. 
And man, does God deserve praise for creating a message and an opportunity for you and I to come to God, not by cleaning ourselves up. Come as you are, one of my favorite albums by Nirvana, honestly. But as a part of application of his affection for God is by being, in Paul's case, he's being very pious. Some would say religious, but I'm going to use the word pious, not to justify himself, but through doing what he did to worship God in this way. Did you know that worship isn't just singing songs? Worship is not just raising your hands. Worship is not just giving of your offering. Worship is how you live. In fact, our lives should be worship services devoted to God. So as Paul finished these seven days of cleansing, some Jews probably that had been following him uh, were stirring up the crowd. Originally, I, I think it's the same crowd. They're stirring up the crowd in Corinth. Then they go to Ephesus, and now they're here in Jerusalem. And this is far. This wasn't an expensive Uber. This was really far, and they did not have cars. And they are now antagonizing Paul and the crowd around him near the temple. Verse 28. Shouting, Fellow Israelites, I actually don't know the tone, but we'll do this one. Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. Do you like my tone? Anyway. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. These men act as if they're in danger because of Paul's presence, but he is just one man. Not only are these Jews stirring up the crowd, but they are making assumptions and speaking half-truths to justify their narrative. Now, I know where I'm going with this, and it's going to be a little bit wordy, and there's going to be words that you might be like, what does that word mean? Write it down. You can ask me later. But the gospel... No, here's the thing, though. While Paul was very scary to these people, and they were saying he's doing all of these awful things, Paul is their people. He's a Jew. He's teaching not against the law. He ironically keeps the law far better than any of them do, even though he doesn't have to based on who he knows, Jesus, that justifies him. But the gospel, the good news of grace, the reality that Jesus came and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, lived the perfect life, died a sacrificial death, physically rose from the dead, is exalted on high, will come back one day. That gospel message, it's offensive to those who are perishing because many of us want to justify ourselves. And it even contradicts the most religious of the religious because it wars against, it contradicts taking credit for anything. The gospel ought to and does bring a sense of humility to the one who understands the gospel of grace. Because with the gospel of grace, we have no pride to hold on to. We say this often, but the gospel's not about you. It's about Jesus. So first, these opponents of grace accuse Paul of teaching against the law. And then they assume Paul, who was outside of the temple with a Gentile companion, a Greek, illegally took this Greek into the temple beyond where a Greek was allowed. Verse 29. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian Greek, in the city with Paul, and here's the word again, assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. If a Greek went beyond the courts where Gentiles were allowed, the Greek would be charged with a crime that came with death as the punishment. So the Jews, who are against Paul 
and his gospel message assume that he, Paul, the former Pharisee, brought this Greek companion into the temple like Paul didn't know the law. Now, we know what happens when we assume, right? Earmuffs, kids, just kidding. You make a donkey, (laughs) King James Version, out of both you and I. And maybe that isn't how it goes. You ever notice when someone dislikes someone, all of the assumptions that tend to be made are not only the worst case scenario, but they are accusatory. Because there is a narrative that that opponent must feed into, if it's reality or not, to make themselves feel better than. Not that this has ever happened to me. But to be fair, I've probably done this as well. Verse 30. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. These assumed accusations created such an uproar that a mob of people seized Paul, dragged him from the temple, and attempted to subdue him, and then even more. Here's what it says, verse 31. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. That escalated quickly. Luke writes that the intention was not just to imprison Paul for his false accusations, by these false accusations, but they were attempting to kill him. This is what the flesh does. This is what the non-Holy Spirit work in someone's life does. We vilify people. We make them villains. We jump on a side. We want to condemn people if we hear something about them. Years ago, I was personally pretty obsessed with social media. I know that's a surprise to many of you. And I also have a bit of an addictive personality. And I use social media for networking. I was in insurance, I did sales, I did a bunch of stuff in that way, and connection. And and I used it to stay up to date with other people. And while I won't name which social media platforms I use because it'll make me sound like a grandpa, I did have a top eight and I was friends with Tom. That's my space for you kids. Justin Timberlake owns it now. But I noticed myself checking it far too often. And I noticed my mood changing based on what I saw posted and what others were doing. And usually, at least for me, it was never, man, my mood is so much better because I was on this platform. You know what I say? What I'm saying? Like, like even if there's, even if there's like videos of kittens, there's a bunch of political stuff all around it, right? But I also started to see years before the pandemic how ruthless and ill-informed some people are, how they bought into any accusation and assumed wrongdoing of any and everyone, and eventually I had a personal conviction. This is, I'm not telling you don't be on social media, it's not good for my personality. But I had this personal conviction that I didn't want to see certain things, nor be seen by the type of people like this mob in this passage assumed and vilified others for the sole purpose of attempting to feed a narrative that was not set in reality. This mob was so fueled by anger about accusations that were not set in reality. I mean, Paul knew he was justified by Jesus, not the law, yet he still kept the law better than anyone. Not to earn salvation, but out of worship for his God. 
But he was being accused for breaking the law, and this mob, especially these opponents who traveled from Ephesus, were breaking far more of the law than Paul ever did. It's almost like the idea of a religion of works, doing it yourself, or do-gooding, or being nice as your justification, or prosperity, or feelings, is in contrast with the truth of the word of God and the gospel of grace. I say that sarcastically because it is. And those who want to justify themselves will never realize that bowing a knee is far, far more powerful than attempting to earn one's salvation. Far more powerful. So the Roman commander and his troops were notified of this disturbance. Verse 32. He, the commander, at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Well, that's nice of them. Ironically, this mob did not care about humanity as Paul was getting attacked and would be attempted to be slaughtered. They didn't care about justice as Paul had not been proven guilty, but only accused. They did not have reverence for the temple or even God's law as they were doing this in front of the temple and were attempting to kill Paul when his offense, especially as a Jew, would not earn him personally death by the mob. But instead, the mob was intimidated and stopped their attack on Paul out of self-preservation physically as the commander and his troops showed up. Verse 33, the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. <laughs> You're arrested. Now let me figure out what your problem is. This commander, or Roman tribune, as he is referred to in ESV, saw the commotion, arrests Paul, bounds him with two chains, which probably could have implied that a soldier was chained to both his right and left side, and then the commander asked the crowd what Paul had done, probably with the assumption that he had caused this commotion. Verse 34. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. The mob, this headless gaggle of people, finally I get to use gaggle, I love that word. This mob, this headless gaggle of people were yelling accusations, but they were not uniform, they were not consistent with one another. And since the commander couldn't get to the truth, he removed Paul from the sight of everyone. Verse 35, when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. Imagine the scene. Paul, who hadn't done anything wrong based on the law, both Roman and God's law, had incited a crowd because of assumptions and accusations made against him, so much so that the crowd had turned violent. And these soldiers had to protect Paul by carrying him to the barracks. Verse 36, the crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. This crowd had become a mob and was shouting to get rid of Paul, which reminds me, and I'm pretty sure it's going to remind you, of another innocent man who was not only innocent of the claims against him, but was sinless in his life and actions. Let me take you towards the end of Luke chapter 23. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people 
And he said to them, you brought me this man who was inciting the people to rebellion. Real quick, this isn't about Paul. This is about Jesus. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for the insurrection in the city and for murder. Verse 20, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they instantly demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and they surrendered Jesus to their will. I'd say all of us in this place have some sense of justice. You know what I mean? If it's social, law enforcement, if it's judicial or relational, we have some sense of justice. What we see both in the gospel account of Jesus going to the cross and Paul being accused and retained in this instant in Acts is that the gospel message that we are saved by grace, getting what we do not deserve. What are we saved by? Grace. Okay, good. I'm going to keep asking you to talk back and there might even be an amen at some point. See, it's not our do-gooding. It's not our niceness. It's not our effort, it's not our accolades, it is not by religion or our abilities. We are saved by one thing and one thing alone. It is by grace, a gift that is given that is not deserved. That is what a Christian believes and and buys into. And this gift of grace is given only by God. Not because anyone could earn it, but just the opposite, because none of us could earn it. So we are saved by what? Grace. We are saved by grace through faith. What is faith? Well, it's not spiritual superstition like many religious folks treat it as. It is not just assuming that things will work out. Faith is when what we believe dictates how we behave, and that behavior is identified by trust in that belief. It's when our belief collides with exercised trust. Faith is not what saves us. Only grace can do that. But it is how grace is received, by faith. By trusting that grace is all that we can trust in. Again, not our effort, not our religion, but God's undeserved favor in the gift of grace. So how are we saved? How is that grace received? Faith. And who is that faith ultimately and solely in? It is ultimately and solely in Jesus. And which Jesus Christ? The Word who became flesh. John 1:14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, we don't believe in a made-up version of Jesus or a God of our own desires, but the Jesus who reveals himself in the scriptures. He reveals himself. Did you catch that? This isn't what man says about Jesus. This is the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
God revealing and leading the human authors to write what we need to know about Jesus. He's not far from any of us, Paul says in Acts 17. And we don't have to guess at who he is or assume things about his character. Have you ever thought something about God and then someone showed you or you read in the Bible and you realized that thing you thought about God was wrong? No, just me? You need to read more for the record. He's not far from any of us. And he has revealed his word and his son written by his spirit And he writes what it is that we need to know to grow in maturity. So we are saved by? Through? In? Yes! And that is the gospel message in a tweet. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And that is the message that both in 33 AD, where Jesus was being accused, arrested, and crucified, and in the 60s AD, Paul preaching the same message is being accused, arrested, and threatened to be killed. Why? Because religious people refuse to grasp grace. If you have one takeaway, that's at least my own takeaway from my own sermon, religious people refuse to grasp grace. And by religious, I don't mean those who attend places of worship or have a cross as a necklace or a tattoo. But the people who believe that they are good with God or the universe or consciousness because they self-justify. No one can justify you before a holy and perfect God, but said holy and perfect God. And Paul and Peter and James and you and me and many others have received this message, this gift, this person, this grace by faith. But far too many in and outside of the church want to justify themselves so they don't have to give glory to anyone but themselves. You see what I'm saying? Church, I'm with Jesus. He did it all. I did none of it. He gets the glory, I receive the grace. That's the good news. He gets the glory, I receive the grace, and praise be to him forever and ever more. Verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? The commander responds, do you speak Greek? rut I think Paul just blew the commander's mind right here because the commander too assumed something about Paul. And Paul, who is all things to all men, spoke the language of the Roman commander. So then the commander states the assumption to Paul about Paul. Verse 38. Uh, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Now, I'm not assuming all of you guys are reading the works of Josephus, but, you know, you pay me to do that, so I'm doing it. The Josephus, the historian who wrote about this Egyptian in this time period or a little while after, was a false prophet, and he gained a following, according to Josephus, of tens of thousands of followers, which perhaps was a bit more of an exaggeration of what this commander believed because he said 4,000 terrorists that had followed the false prophet to where? The Mount of Olives. And he had claimed, the false prophet, the Egyptian, had claimed that at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall down. Guess what? They didn't. False prophet. And here is the commander assuming that Paul is the same guy based on probably the reaction of the mob and how angry they are. So what does Paul say to this assumption? 
Is he going to release his tax records too soon? No. He's going to show his resume. Paul answered, verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, I can't say it either, Melanie, Sicilia, sure, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people, Paul says. Paul is a respected Jew. He's not a terrorist, but he is from Tarsus, not an ordinary city, he says. He's from the good side of the tracks, in essence. Verse 40, after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and he motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, dot, dot, dot. Nope, we're going to do one verse. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And that is where we're going to stop. On the cliffhanger, that Sylvester Stallone movie was a good movie for the record. And he's about to speak in, Eric, in Aramaic, in which he will inadvertently show that he has not at all what anyone was accusing him of or expecting. Next week, we're going to hear how he defends not only himself, but his apologetic for the gospel of grace found in the person and the work of Jesus. Okay, you have your Bibles? Are they open? Shut them. Let's hear it. And some of you are like, you know, with your phone. That's fine. I have to be honest. We're not done. I just wanted you to shut your Bibles because I want your attention. This passage, when I first read it, usually seemed to just be like a narrative that you read past, right? Next week's speech that Paul preaches is one that is full of theology. It's full of apologetics. It's full of the gospel. It's full of truth. But this passage today was a bit more of, well, what happened? But as I studied this passage, as we unpacked what is said, the intent of Luke describing what Paul did, I was struck by the social and religious commentary that is presented that is as much of a problem now as it was then. How often do I assume things that break relationships? And even more importantly, create an excuse for me, maybe not to share the gospel with someone. I assume things like, well, they're not ready. Or, well, they don't want to hear it. Um, so? No one wants to hear that they have a disease. But if we do, it's nice to know how to fight it. And to fight it early. And to fight it often. And as a pastor... I assume a lot of things. I assume that some of you aren't ready to give financially. I assume you are reading the Bible on your own. I assume that when you are ready, you'll come and tell me that you want to get baptized. I assume you know how and where to serve within this community. And if you don't, I assume you have a valid reason. These are things I assume that I could be wrong about. Now, I can't force anyone to give, I can't force anyone to grow, I can't force anyone to read, obey, or serve. I can only lead us to the one for his glory and our maturity offers living water through him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that leads us to love expressed through obedience to him. That's what love looks like biblically. Obedience to him. Now, giving is part of worship. Not because we want to take your money, 
but because a person who finds their freedom in Christ is one who is not bound by the temporal and trying to hold on to this life more than they are investing in the next life. By giving to this church, you don't become more of a Christian or more saved or gain a mansion in the next life. You are simply supporting the proclamation of the gospel while proving to yourself that your money is not your God as you offer it up to the God whom you say you worship. So church, are you giving? And if you're, and, and so if you're not, is there a reason that you're not? Is it that you're afraid to even ask God if you should because he might tell you you should? But if maybe you're new, maybe you're still kicking around the idea of Christianity, don't, don't feel pushed. But there are people that are faithful in everything but giving financially. Now, I also assume that you're all reading the word of God on your own. Not to become better at Bible trivia, Hezekiah tends to be a good answer, but because we believe these are the true words of God. And they reveal God. And they reveal that we have a need for him. How could we not want to know him better and love him back the way that he says that we ought to love him found in his word if we've really understood grace? So church, are you reading this on your own? Not just on Sunday, or not just in community group, but your relationship with God is personal and progressive as you lean into the knowledge of the Son through his word. I assume you know when you'll be ready to be baptized if you, ha- if you haven't had a believer's baptism, which means not baptized before you could believe, but once you believed, you were then, in, in this case, in our church, we dunk you in water. But if you were sprinkled, whatever. But maybe by me assuming that you know how, I'm also assuming that you know that you can just pull one of those communication cards out and say, hey, I'd like to talk about baptism, but maybe you don't know that. Perhaps you're afraid to be baptized because you think more will be expected of you once you commit publicly, and perhaps it might. But rarely, if ever, do I think the question is, should I be baptized? Rather, is it, the real question is, well, why wouldn't I be baptized? And unless your answer is that I don't actually intend to follow Jesus, any and every person who is committed to Jesus ought to obey his words when he says we do this, baptism, to fulfill all righteousness. Not to become a Christian, but because we are committed to Christ as a Christian. And lastly, I think that everyone, I assume, knows the needs of the church and knows how they can get plugged in to serve. And the more I thought about this, I was like, wait, you're, not all of you are in the elder meetings. Not all of you are in the staffing. Not all of you see my emails. Oh. Now, maybe you don't know the needs of the church. Maybe you don't know how you can get plugged in to serve. Maybe you don't realize there are those cards in the pews that you can take every single week, and you can fill out, and you can say, hey, I want to be involved in this, and then drop it in the box as you walk out. From youth ministry to worship ministry to tech ministry to the newly formed deacon and property ministries. Or you can talk to the leaders or those who already volunteer in any of those ministries to find out more. But again, I think too much of this is assumed. And so I'm going to communicate a need that Church of the Valley has, which I almost never do. We have been utterly blessed beyond belief with more children here at COV than I I know what to do with. And I have five in my house. 
In fact, when I first got to this church over five years ago, there was one child that attended this church every other month. And now there are more children on any given Sunday than we currently have room for. Let me let that sit for a second. We don't have room. And you're like, what? There's so much room. Yeah, we have the space, but physically and lawfully, we need to open more classrooms to give more children the opportunity to have more space and personal investment on a Sunday morning. But in order to do so, it would require more and more volunteers who can be present and willing to spend an hour and a half once a month with these children, helping them hear and know Jesus Christ. We live stream the service and we record it. Why do we do it? So anyone who serves in children's ministry can still hear the word and experience the worship service virtually because they missed it because they were serving one Sunday a month or maybe in some cases more than that and they were serving and caring for our children. What a good problem to have. Sorry guys, we have too many kids. But Church of the Valley, we need your help. Never have we ever expected parents to have to serve in children's ministry because they drop their children off each week. And in a lot of cases, it's almost better for those parents to serve in another capacity. But what we are attempting to offer is more classes for more ages, even spreading out some of grade school classes because of how many children there are, and they have so many questions, and they don't always get to ask them because we don't have enough classrooms open. So if you like to hold babies and pray for them, if you like to love, play, and communicate with preschool age children, if you enjoy grade school kids who are sponges and ask a lot of questions, then I want to point you to two options, church. Today, after the service, there is a children's ministry volunteer meeting that our children's director, Erin Riley, big fan of hers for the record, will be leading in the chapel for current and possible future volunteers where she will explain the vision of children's ministry and the progress or the, yeah, the process of serving our kids at COV. Because since we got here, we do not do child care. We ain't Ikea. We teach our children the good news of grace found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So either attend that meeting today if you can, or if you can't, because you already have plans and are not able to, please, please, please take one of the cards, the communication cards, fill it out with your name, your phone number, or your email, however you want to be communicated. Write children's ministry on it and drop it in the box as you walk out or hand it to me as you walk out. And I will make sure that Aaron gets it and reaches out to you regarding what's serving in this growing and gospelicious ministry entails. Got it? Get it? Good. Let's go. Church, let's not assume things. Not only about others, but about our God. Let's be a people that read and hear and study and apply his word. Not because we have to, but because we get to. And as we do, we'll grow together in the likeness of Jesus through the work of the Spirit for the glory of the Father. Amen? Amen. I'm going to, Jason's going to come up and lead us in takeaways. I'm going to pray as he walks up here. God, I, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this kind of, I don't know, the best way I, I, as I was walking through the passage, I was like, 
why aren't we teaching this? Why didn't I just add this into next week? And yet, I think there were specific themes and things you wanted to teach your people. So God, I pray that we as a people would put into practice the things that we learned, that we would not only share a takeaway, but we'd be different. We'd do something different because of your word this morning. We thank you for your promise that your word never comes back void. May that be true as we hear your word and put it into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.